Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. How do we be with someone who is dying? A parent, a child, a partner, a friend. What do we do when someone we love is on their way out of this world? Illustrator Wendy McNaughton did an artist-in-residency at the Zen Hospice Guest House in San Francisco. She got to know families, caregivers, staff, and the dying. What emerged is her book, How to Say Goodbye. Drawn from life, illustrations are paired with gentle advice on how to let someone go. It's very courageous to sit with someone while they're dying, she begins, but you can't actually do anything. She joins us after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking this morning about how to say goodbye to people we know who are dying. We'll be joined by Wendy McNaughton, whose latest book is How to Say Goodbye, which was written and created during her residency at the Zen Hospice Guest House. It's complicated, she says, because no one really knows what to do or say when they find themselves in that situation. You can't change the fundamental mortality of the person. And as she writes, everyone has their own version of what a good death is, just like everyone has their own version of what makes a good life. Thanks so much for joining us here in Studio B, Wendy. Thanks for having me, Alexis. So how did this residency come about? Like, what interested you as an illustrator and writer in working in the Zen hospice setting? Mm, it was it was completely unexpected. Um, I had been spending time with my aunt, who was dying. This was before the residency began. Um, she had Parkinson's, and she was a kindergarten teacher, and she was an mm-hmm. artist. And so as um, she was declining, I started drawing her a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then as it came to the last days of her life, I felt really uncomfortable about being around her. I'd never been at the bedside with somebody you know, who was dying, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I was afraid to really sit and be with her, and mm-hmm. drawing is a way that I am able to look at things and um, to be present with people. So I started drawing her mm-hmm. every day as she was dying. And um, after she passed, uh, the kind of universe steps in as it sometimes does, and um, I got a call within days um, from somebody at Zen Hospice asking if I wanted to be the artist in residence at the guest house. When something like that happens, you don't really say I'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, Yeah. pretty much. Um, And an artist residency uh, in a hospice house is an unusual thing. I'd never heard of it before, but it was the kind of um, creative 
risks and opportunities that um, Zen was known for taking, special place. I mean, how did you interact with people there? Like, were there ground rules? I mean, did people mm. want to be drawn in their last days? Like, how did that work? Well, I started off by meeting everybody who was working there and taking the um, volunteer training. Um, and so getting to know the place in a way, it's a, it's a, was, it, it's not around anymore, but it was a very unique space with a very unique um, kind of uh, pace and presence to it. Um, so I got to, to know the space and the people. And then part of my process that also worked with Zen is I'm not going to draw anybody without, you know, their, their permission. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, and I also don't just draw people. I also talk with them and hang out with them. It's much more of kind of a casual relationship as opposed to an objective, you know, looking at somebody in a way that puts them on a spot. Um, and so it was much more of a kind of cooperative visual conversation with the folks that, that were residents and um, the caregivers and the families. People who don't, uh, people who know your work as an illustrator and writer, they may not know that you were or really are a, a social worker as well. Like you have some training on how to be in tough situations. Do you have any sort of techniques for decentering your own experience enough to kind of see what's really in front of you? That's such a good question. Yeah, I was trained. I don't say I'm a social worker, but I use social work practices in my work and drawing. And a main one that I use um, is a way of keeping my attention on another person. Like, um, I imagine that there is a spotlight kind of above my head. And as I'm talking to somebody listening to somebody, I should say. Um, usually in a conversation, we're kind of swinging that spotlight back and forth between us. You talk about yourself, I talk about myself, that's how we're going to connect. But when we're actively listening or actively looking, like when I draw, really, I just try to imagine a spotlight swinging it onto the other person and then just leaving it there and asking follow-up questions that push that forward mm -hmm. and looking deeply. There's always more to see. Mm. So how did this practice turn into this object that is now available for people? Oh, it's a long, so this, this book, <laughs> this book, how to, how to Say Goodbye. Um, I spent a year on and off at the Zen Hospice Guest House drawing people, um, I wouldn't say interviews, more like conversations, mm -hmm. writing down everything they said. And then I took the drawings that I had done and the words and I put them together to tell a story. And that story is very straightforward and simple. It's the wisdom of the hospice caregivers, how to, yeah. in a way, um, be present with somebody in the last days of their life. Um, and I didn't know what to do with it. I was not ready. This was, I mean, what, like six years yeah, ago, right. I think. Um, I was, it was such a personal project. There's drawings of my aunt that are in there. Um, and I felt an incredible responsibility to all the people who are in the book. I didn't feel comfortable going out and, and like selling this book. You right. know, like, I didn't hey, want to. Hey, Random House. Yeah. Would you like to, right. <laughs> no, it felt like something that was a precious object that was, it was a gift to me to be there. So I wanted to give it as a gift to others. My aunt had left me some money. I took that and I published 200 copies myself. A designer um, worked with Alvaro Villanueva on oh, it. Yeah. yeah. And he, um, we, we made it and then. Um, I gave those out as gifts with the ask that if it was helpful, that it be passed on to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that these would go out into the world. And if they're helpful, they're helpful. It's beautiful. And then we ran out. <laughs> um, and uh, my agent 
got calls for more from people just asking, where can I get a copy? And with enough time and distance, in a way, like this book, it's it's about letting letting go. In a way, when I was ready to let go of this project mm. and have it not be so deep in my bones and really just enable it to have its own life outside of myself, that's when um, I talked to my wonderful editor at Bloomsbury, mm-hmm. Nancy Miller, and it became the book that is now... Yeah. out on shelves. So who's the book for? I mean, is it for people who are dying? Is it for the people who are around them? Is it for both? It's a good question. I do think it's for it's for everybody, and we can all learn from it at, at any point in our lives. But really, what I like to say, it's kind of the world's saddest gift book. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a, when somebody is losing somebody, which we all do many times in our lives, yeah. We often want to do something for them. We, we often want to support them in some way, but we don't really know what to do or say. And I think this is a good thing to offer somebody um, who is losing somebody and might, as I did, had no idea what to do, you know, even though there really isn't anything we can do. Just it's like a starting point for us to enter a conversation, um, to become present in a moment with someone. And it's very direct. It's almost like a introduction like a guidebook that is an introduction to a time where we might be looking for some support mm-hmm. and how to how to be with right. our loved ones. I mean, what is your initial advice? Like you're someone maybe who realizes that their loved one is going into hospice care. You show up day day one of that. You sit down. It's kind of hard. What's supposed to happen there? Oh, I mean, I'm not the expert on it by any means. I might have written the book about it, but I didn't write the book. Again, these are words of hospice caregivers, the people who really have a lot of experience. Um, I can just speak about my own experience, and that is I'm a doer. Like, I'm somebody who wants to fix things. I want to make things out of things. Mm -hmm. And time and time again, life is teaching me we can't fix things. We Mm -hmm. can't do a lot. All we can do is really slow down and open up and be there with somebody in a way that is close and intimate and loving. And that's hard for a lot. It's hard for me to do a lot of times. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think just the kind of person that I am, I think I would end up being talking too much, asking, you know, oh, tell me more questions. Like, I, I think that energy would have a hard time settling in that space. Yeah. I think a lot of us are like that. We're talking about how to say goodbye to the dying. What's it mean to be present? How do you just do it? And is there such a thing as a a good death? We're joined by Wendy McNaughton, an illustrator, artist, graphic journalist. Her latest book is How to Say Goodbye. And she's also the creator of Draw Together, the educational drawing program for kids and adults. I'd love to hear from you. I mean, have you navigated the death of a loved one? What's helped you or what what would you do? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org and you can find us in all the social media as KQED Forum. Going to add another voice into our conversation. I want to add Lady Bird Morgan, who's the co-founder of the Humane Prison Hospice Project, also a, a nurse and clinical social worker who's worked in end-of-life care for over 20 years. Welcome, Lady Bird. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Wendy, maybe 
want to set this up because you and Lady Bird actually met at the Zen Hospice Center. Right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I was finishing up um, the artist residency there, um, coming in to do a few more days of drawing. Walked up the stairs and Lady Bird, who I hadn't met before, was sitting at the nurse's station. And we got into quick conversation. Turns out we'd gone to the same social work school and mm-hmm. had a lot of interests in common and hit it off. And mm-hmm. we've been friends and collaborators ever since. Lady Bird, why did you get into this kind of work? Why did I get into this kind of work? <laughs> I don't know that you can't. I mean, I, I guess I feel like death is for everyone. Um, and I just happen to pay attention to it a little bit differently, but it's, it feels very much a part of life for me. Um, it felt actually hard to not be a part of the work, but I, I recognized very early um, in high school that I wasn't turning away from it. I ended up in Africa um, at a work exchange program in a clinic that was very remote. And a lot of the people that came in, including children died in the clinic, not because of lack of care, but just resources. And I found that I wasn't running away from it. There was something about it that was actually holding my attention. And I I didn't I wouldn't say that I actively pursued work in end of life. It just kept meeting me. Huh. I feel like even just hearing you say the words about the children dying makes me want to run run away from mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um Wendy, you did not you had kind of run away from it before this moment in your life, yeah? Yeah, I think drawing is a way that um, I am able to approach things that I'm afraid of, that I want to look away from, that I make me feel scared. Um, and so it's it's a tool that I use and that I used in this circumstance. I did not. I'm not. I was not like Lady Bird. <laughs> Lady Bird, I'm ever in awe of you. Um, I was afraid to, and so yeah, drawing was how I approached that. We're talking about how to say goodbye to the dying. We're joined by Wendy McNaughton, an illustrator, artist, and graphic journalist. New book is How to Say Goodbye. We're also joined by Lady Bird Morgan, who's co-founder of the Humane Prison Hospice Project and who's been worked at End of Life Care for over 20 years. We're going to take some of your calls after the break about how you've navigated the death of a loved one or eased a loved one's last days in hospice. The number is 866-733-6786 and the email's forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? you left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how to say goodbye 
to the dying. What's it mean to be present? What should you say? How should you be? We're joined by Wendy McNaughton, author of a new book, How to Say Goodbye, author and creator. It's an beautiful, illustrated book. We're also joined by Lady Bird Morgan, who's co-founder of the Humane Prison Hospice Project and has worked in this field for for a long time. Wanted to bring an, uh, another voice in on the phones. Aaron in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Wendy, I don't know if you remember me. I was the kitchen manager for a little bit of time while you were there. Oh, Aaron, how could I forget? I'm so <laughs> good to hear your voice. <laughs> it's uh, so lovely. I just saw your book on the shelf and instantly recognized folks. And it was just so magical to have that um, out in the world. So thank you so much. Aaron, I, I got a question for you. Yeah. I mean, what was it like just to be doing daily work, like regular work, making food within the context of that kind of space that has such a specific purpose in easing people out of the world? Yeah, um, it was such a lesson in learning how food isn't really about food. It's about all these other things happening. And so how you would go into somebody's room, into one of the guest room, and you'd ask what they want to eat. And it would be this opening to talk about, you know, maybe they escaped the Holocaust and they want some chicken matzo ball soup. Mm. Or they, uh, we had one gentleman who would buy these fancy pot roasts every week. And so we did fancy dinners uh, for him, he couldn't eat it, but he just wanted to smell and see all the incredible community that would gather around his food. Mm. And, um, yeah, you know, we had one woman who just wanted to drink beer and uh, milk all day. Relatable. <laughs> so we really met, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we really met people where they were at, and it was a very different kind of um, space where it wasn't about trying to push an agenda or healing through you know, mushroom teas or anything like that. It was about meeting them where they're at and what creates mm. the best quality of life. And, you know, it's thinking about kind of what B.J. Miller said, like, how do we create that holistic sense of taking care of all their senses? Yeah. And so they might not actually eat anything on the plate, but being able to see it, taste it, you know, not even swallow, the, all that stuff created that environment that made it so mm. that the caregiver could go into that room and sit there and just be present. It was it was pretty magical to be in that space. I cried all the time. I learned so much. Yeah. And it was more me letting go. I just lost my father a little bit earlier. And yeah. um, for me, it was like, you know, I would deliver something to a guest and she'd be like, this is awful. And it was a really good practice in learning. Like, I make the food, but I'm not the food. You know, we make mm -hmm. the food, but we're not the food. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, yeah, you know, there was, that house was you got off of Hay Street and you'd walk or Page Street, you'd walk into that space and you entered a totally magical world. And then you'd mm -hmm. go in the backyard and you'd get to sit with some of the guests and their visitors. And mm. it was, yeah. it was a magical space and I'm so sad it's gone, yeah. but um, yeah. that book really triggered all this beautiful memories. And Aww. this morning I just texted everybody, all my caregiver friends. And I was like, when is on for us? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know, so, Aaron, you're the best. Um, yeah. Oh, thank you so and I much. Yeah. getting to, overlap with just Lady Bird for a quick second who just was magical for the nursing department and yeah I didn't I don't want to take up too much space but I just wanted to say thank you Wendy and Lady Bird and thank you Alexis for having this program oh, it's so yeah. important right now. Oh Aaron it's thank so you. it's so good to hear from you and you're bringing up something that was so important and unique to the guest house which I think we can all learn from which is the senses you would walk into the guest house you'd immediately be greeted by beautiful flowers fresh flowers that were always mm. around there was gorgeous art on the wall so there were, you know these wonderful visuals next thing you would smell there was always something cooking in the kitchen the smell of cooking 
cookies. Um, it, it was every everything all you know pillows everywhere. It was all very um, a sensually rich environment. Mm-hmm. Um, completely yeah. the opposite from a hospital, mm. right? It was very yeah. much about living a very full life right up until your last breath. Yeah. Thank you so much for that call, Aaron. That's beautiful. You know, Lady Bird, I wanted to ask you about your work kind of, I mean, I want to say basically at the opposite end of the sort of care spectrum where, you know, in California prisons, there's only, there there isn't hospice care generally, right? I mean, people don't generally have a lot of, of choice or comfort in those last moments. Correct. Yes, there is one. So there are about 30 prisons now since COVID. I think there were 33 before COVID. A couple have closed. And there's only one hospice program in the state for over 200,000 incarcerated individuals. Um, And so that's very 17 beds for 200,000 people. And it's just for men also. So none of the women get to go. And the current state is that in prison, there is not even palliative medicine. They're just starting to get whiff of that and start to make some plans and create some programs. But at the moment, you don't have palliative medicine. You might just die in your cell, Mm. which becomes a crime scene for your cellmate who goes into solitary confinement while they determine Mm. if you died legally. Um, You can die in the infirmary, which is an isolated cell room where you're dying alone, again, with a staff that doesn't always have awareness or teaching around palliative medicine or end of life. If you happen to get transferred to the hospital, you will die shackled to your bed um, Mm. with some guards outside of the door and not necessarily being able to see any family or friends and being cared for by people who know nothing about you and might Mm. even be have some opinions about you. So Mm -hmm. the options are pretty bleak. So what have you tried to do to make things better? The Humane Prison Hospice Project, which I co-founded with Sandy Fish and Marvin Much in 2017, 18, really is now promoting this model. It's a beautiful model, which is prisoners become trained as caregivers, um, very similar to the Zen Hospice Project, where everyone that came in got to be a part of caring for somebody who's dying, and it ends up caring for you. So the program is very simple. Uh, The prisoners are trained to be the bedside caregivers. They're doing the baths, the care, they're sitting vigil, and it it brings them back to their humanity. It allows them to f- touch into that place that some people maybe didn't get to access for 40 years, 50 years. And the ripple effect of that on the staff is profound. So the person is no longer dying alone in fear. But the the impact on everyone else, which is what you know Wendy could speak to or anyone who's worked in hospice, it's not just for the person dying. It's actually for the community. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's really a restorative justice program. Wow. And Wendy, have you witnessed any of this? Or, or uh, Lady Bird um, invited me to draw um, the program that she was facilitating and co-founded. Um, and how long did we spend there? Was it once a week for six weeks? Was it? Yeah, it's about six weeks. We went on every Monday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I brought in a sketchbook and my pens, and I I drew the the men who were going through this training um, and sat and had conversations with them and ended up doing a piece uh, that was published in California Sunday Magazine mm-hmm. um, about these men who were going through this very like lengthy and really beautiful training process to become hospice mm-hmm. caregivers inside San Quentin. Did you learn something different from that than you did from the drawing project at Zen Hospice? Mm. <sighs> um. 
I mean, the, the circumstances were very different in San Quentin. Um, there is a really, um, as one can imagine, intense power dynamic that exists in there. These men do not have um, the opportunity really to to have this kind of like training and also don't. Um, I wasn't. How should I say this? I going into a place like Zen Hospice is was more comfortable for me and that everybody was kind of used to being open and it was fine. And, and in this situation, it was a challenge for me to be really present with these guys in a way um, where I wanted to make sure that they felt like they were in control of their story. Mm-hmm. M- m- I al- always do, but especially in that circumstance. Um, and I think, I think we did a pretty good job with it. Hmm. You know, Lady Bird, um, there's these types of deaths, like when I'm just imagining them in my mind and from your descriptions, are so different. They're so different. And yet, at some level, there is this, I mean, people are dying. The reality, the underlying reality is is actually the same. Like, how how do you think about those similarities and, and differences in the face of this kind of ultimate equalization? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think it maybe goes back to your first question about what brought me into this work is I feel like death allows me to remember that it's not life isn't just about me. There are other things going on. And similar to, to Wendy's comment about, you know, this social work lens allowing her to put the spotlight onto another being and be really present for them. People are dying in so many different ways, suddenly, dramatically, violently, sometimes with grace, sometimes with planning. But there's many, many ways to die. And there's usually a capacity to have some type of presencing around that, even if the presence is that you're dying in nature by yourself and the trees were there for you. Mm. Right. I think for me, what's really important is taking away this mysticism and this magical quality of being at the bedside and remembering that the whole universe is here supporting us and living and dying. How do we make more space for all of us to be able to see what our role is in it, not just the magical people who happen to choose to do the work? Hmm. Wow. Thanks, Lady Bird. Um, Let's bring in Susan in San Francisco. Welcome, Susan. Hi. Um, Love this program, Um, the topic today. My family took care of my mother at home uh, when she was dying of cancer, and my family was kind of a a family that would try to solve problems and make things, and and it took a long time and trial and error to realize that we couldn't solve the problems. No matter how small they were, we couldn't solve them. And finally learning to just be there and be mm-hmm. present and really and be present really i love the idea of drawing because drawing is about seeing mm-hmm. and it drawing is really about being present mm-hmm. and i guess one other thing i wanted to say is it that was the best and the hardest work i ever did was was being there for her mm-hmm. and also i kind of learned to see things through her eyes because when she saw things she knew she was going and there was a sense that she knew that this was the last time she may see some of these things and she was very present with that and so it was i wouldn't have given up that experience for anything mm-hmm. i mean i'm i wish she hadn't died obviously but it was 
it's a really important experience that enriched my life and and I wish people didn't run from the mm-hmm. idea of death because it happens to everyone. Yeah. Ah, oh, Susan, mm-hmm. thanks Thank you, so Susan. much for yeah. sharing that with us. Beautiful. You know, Wendy, in in this book, you have sort of accumulated the wisdom of hospice caregivers and one of the components of of that wisdom in addition to what Susan was just mentioning to us about sort of just just learning to be present and mm-hmm. kind of turning off the problem-solving brain, were these kind of five sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, what what were those, and how did you sort of mm. – tell, tell me about that distillation. Yeah. Um, the now executive director of the Zen Caregiving Project, which is what the Zen Hospice turned into, Roy Raymer, um, shared this with me and explained it as these five things that have been said across um, many cultures for a long time. Um, uh, Dr. Ira Bayak wrote a book that featured them as well um, for four things. But there are these five things that we can say that can help us let go and help us um, make sure that nothing is left unsaid with somebody who is dying, somebody in our life. Um, and they're very simple. Um, these are not, these are conversation starters. Mm-hmm. They are, um, I forgive you. Mm-hmm. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. And goodbye. Mm-hmm. So these are five things that we can say. Again, they're, they're ways to start a conversation so that nothing is left unsaid. Um, it doesn't change anything, right? Mm-hmm. We're still letting we're still letting go of a person. We're still going to lose them, um, and maybe we'll always have some regrets. I don't think it's possible for us to say it all and resolve it all. That's just not not possible. But we can we can do our best. I found it kind of fascinating that of of the five, two are about you know the the sides of forgiveness. Yeah. Is that uh, what do you make of that? I mean, conversations are hard to have, right? A lot of us aren't people who go straight into the the challenging conversations with the people who are closest to us. But the end of life is an opportunity to say those things that we've maybe been avoiding our whole lives, that we hold so deep in our heart, that we want to let go of. I don't think that, you know, it is funny, two of the five things are are about forgiveness, but maybe it's more about letting go of things that mm. we've held on to so that we can let go of the person who we love. Mm. Lady Bird, what, what do you think? Like, how would you, what, what would you add uh, to those five sentences? Oh, oh, wow. I don't know if I would add anything to them, but I, I think what happens for me is thinking about, it's not so much about letting go as acknowledging that you have seen and experienced and witnessed someone and that mm-hmm. you were seen and experienced and witnessed, you know, saying, please forgive me, I forgive you, to me is a pathway to, did you see, did, did you understand what I meant? Mm-hmm. Did you really actually feel me? And mm-hmm. yes, I felt you, I saw you, I, I love you, you know, like, forgiveness mm-hmm. for me is about being seen and, and seeing. Mm. And that's a big piece at end of life is, did my life matter? Did anyone notice me? Will they remember me? Right. Um, it's mm. some of the bigger pieces of, you know, what actually mattered. It's not To me, it's less about letting go than it is about acknowledging that you existed. Mm. I think yeah. that's actually harder for people. And then to go. Like, you get to say, I love life and I'm leaving. Mm. Not, I'm leaving because I'm done with life. Uh-huh. Right. It's oh. very different. Thanks, Lady Bird. 
Um, you know, M, one of our listeners tweets, you know, five years after my mother passed away, I still see myself at her deathbed. I was out of my mind in grief and shock. She was in hospital for a month and a half. It still wasn't enough for me to prepare or say goodbye. I remember whispering to her, asking if she was tired. And she nodded yes with a heavy breath, and I energetically shared it was okay for her to go. I wish I had more time. Lady Bird, for, for somebody like Em, who feels like they didn't get, they, you know, maybe there never would be enough time, or maybe they just didn't get enough time in that moment. Like, how can someone like that, after someone has passed, kind of find some closure for themselves? Yeah, Em, thank you for sharing something so tender, and I'm sorry for losing um, a loved one in that way. I, I think the only thing I can say right now in this moment is just hold your memory, hold your love for this being close to you. You know, that is real and that exists. And I, I, I feel like those connections are ongoing, that you continue to cultivate your connection and your love for people that you love mm-hmm. through, your, through yourself, through your being. So just find a place of trust that your connection was real Mm-hmm. And it's a hard, it's so hard to go through painful deaths and losses like that. So I'm yeah. really sorry. Yeah. I thought a lot about my, my own parents who are in, in great health, actually still, still there. Uh, but I thought how often I have conversations with them now where they're, we're not actually on the phone or anything. Like, and I mm-hmm. already talked to them, which will, of course will continue, um, mm-hmm. when, when they are actually gone, uh, uh, Wendy, Stephen writes in to say, uh, I'm writing instead of calling because I don't want to break down in grateful tears on the air. just wanted to thank Wendy for her draw together sessions mm-hmm. early on in the pandemic. I didn't know it then, but my family and I were dealing with grief and loss. We'd lost our routine. We lost joy. We lost hope. Her sessions brought those things back to our lives in those first uneasy days. And all of us cherish the observational drawings we created with her help. To this day. Well, that makes me so happy to hear. It was a a gift to me. Thank you so much. We're talking about how to say goodbye to the dying. What does it mean to be present? How should you be? We're joined by Wendy McNaughton, illustrator, artist, and graphic journalist. Her latest book is How to Say Goodbye. She's illustrated or authored 11 books, including Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and Meanwhile in San Francisco, and is the creator of Draw Together educational drawing program, as you just heard. We're also joined by Lady Bird Morgan, co-founder of the Humane Prison Hospice Project, registered nurse and a clinical social worker who's worked in end-of-life care for 20 years and is a palliative care consultant with Metal Health. We're going to take more of your calls after the break. If you can't get through there, try the email address, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? 
You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how to say goodbye to the dying. We're joined by Wendy McNaughton, who's got a new book about that very topic called How to Say Goodbye, and Lady Bird Morgan, who's worked in end-of-life care for over 20 years. You know, right before the break, one of our listeners mentioned Wendy's other project, which is called Draw Together, which is an educational drawing program for kids and adults. That that feels pretty different <laughs> from How to Say Goodbye, um, especially for those who've seen Draw Together. Yeah. It's like kind of Pee Wee's Playhouse yeah. crossed by, you know, San Francisco queerdom. Yes, proudly. Yeah, I mean, it, it, so in Draw Together, which um, as thank you for that nice note that the person wrote in, started um, in the pandemic as kind of a way to help um, families do something joyful um, and process some emotions. It seems it's so radically different than um, uh, drawings about hospice. But for me, it's actually the same two sides of the same coin. Um, Drawing across the board, whether it's drawing a dog with four-year-olds um, or it's drawing somebody dying in their last days, um, drawing is a way that we can pay attention to the world. It helps us slow down. It helps us look closely. And it helps us connect with the people or the place or the thing that we're drawing in a way that otherwise I do not think we often do. Um, it's kind of a, we all start off doing it and then it's trained out of us, but it's deep in our bones as a way of connecting to each other and the world around us. So whether you're, you know, doing it at, in, in early days and using your imagination going out or if you haven't drawn for 40 years, but you're looking for a way to connect with people and the world, um, it's a very easy way. It's a way to focus on the process and the experience of doing something as mm. opposed to the outcome. It's mm. beautiful. Let's um, bring in some more people. Irene in Sacramento. Welcome. Hello, this is Irene. Hey, Irene, welcome. Um, what a bombastic program. Amazing. Um, first of all, I have two things I need to share. I'm a former nurse, clinical mm. auditor, and I also had a near-death experience. So on that side... I have a different view about death and dying. Mm. However, as a nurse and as a medical interpreter in San Diego at UCSD, I was uh, close to many patients who had unfortunately gone through dying. And uh, I think that it is a very important topic. Nobody wants to talk about it except today in your show. And... The process, uh, like the author on the program of drawing, I think it's great. However, I took a different approach. And my approach was I needed to apologize to a patient who had died because I listened to the doctor's instructions. And I was so irate that I didn't do what the patient Mm -hmm. wanted, but what the doctor wanted, that I stormed out of the of the hospital and wrote a poem for this patient, mm-hmm. kind of uh, my form of apology to him. Mm-hmm. And so, and he was a youngster. Mm. And l- years later, when I went to work at the San Diego AIDS Project, obviously in the uh, late 80s, a lot of people were dying of mm-hmm. HIV and AIDS. I showed it to a colleague who distributed it to, you know, mm. a lot of the mourners. And that poem just took off 
like by itself. And mm. just like your author that distributed the books without yeah. any charge, that poem has gone around. And a lot of people have told me that it has helped them because it has a hopeful thing in there. It brings the, the person that died into the picture, but then it has something that keeps the patient or, or their family member or friend alive instead of them thinking, well, he or she is gone. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, mm. the, the patient is there. Mm. And I think that whatever we can do to help people, you know, in general through life, but through the dying process, mm-hmm. um, the better everybody is going yeah. to be. Irene, thank you so much. Um, appreciate you. your your work with everyone through the, that's that's a lot of years to be involved with um, people in this in this line of work. Thank you so much. Um, what do you, Lady Bird? What do you think it is about particular forms of wisdom around death that get passed in this way, kind of hand to hand? It it does seem like it's almost like some underground knowledge that only people have who are who get really close to this topic. Hmm. It's interesting. I love these questions. <laughs> um, I, I feel like it's, it's the way that we honor transitions and thresholds and something about America, at least for me, my experience in America in the last however many years I've been here, 50 some years, it's not a lot of honoring of thresholds and transitions and like where we've mm. been other than unless there was a pain or a hurt. But the the honoring of the beauty and so many cultures honor death and dying and have beautiful ways of acknowledging when loved ones are passing and and actually continuing the the relationship after they've died. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so foreign. Actually, we we talk about we say that we never talk about it, and I actually don't believe that. I feel like many people actually do. We just don't remember how to listen to what we're hearing. Mm-hmm. Um, the language has changed. We are moving so fast. There are so many beautiful customs and cultures that we learn from our from our elders um, that are not so secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's. There's more of that wisdom. Um, uh, Phil in San Anselmo, welcome. Another company. Yeah. Hey, Phil. Can you hear us? Right. Uh, nope. <laughs> Phil cannot hear us. Um, let's. Uh, there is. Uh, there's. There's some really beautiful comments um and try and get through these without losing it myself here um Catherine writes my brother and i are supporting my mom in her end of life process she is an at home hospice which means we are with her always through this process it has been precious and incredibly painful saying goodbye over time has been a luxury and has brought up so much that our family still needs to heal from I've been trying to document and share the process because she wanted me to, and we want to help normalize end-of-life care and processes. I'm training to become a death doula and worker, and I'm grateful for my mom to share her journey with me and my my brothers. Mm. I, I, Lady Bird, for people who are doing in-home hospice uh, care, like how is that different, or how can they? I mean, the only thing that that worries me. Is that just seems like twenty four hours a day? That seems really difficult. And how do you find space to be outside of that caretaking mode? Yeah, um, it's really a, an important point. Is is community right? And a lot of people don't have 
large communities. They might not even have another family member. And hospice care is really about the team that comes in. But I, again and again, I try to, I'm, I'm really a proponent of emancipating people back out into the world of that there's a very large world for us and that you don't need to do it by yourself. Hospice programs are beautiful in that way that they bring in a team of people, hopefully some volunteers that can allow you to take a walk, go see a friend, go to the movies and have other people come in and step, you know, be near your loved ones. So remembering that it can feel like you should be the only one doing it. And generally that's not a good idea. Yeah. Um, let's bring in Noel in Pleasanton. Welcome, Noel. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I am in a situation where my my spouse, um, his father, so my father-in-law was just diagnosed with stage four cancer. Um, The prognosis doesn't look good. Um, And this is the first time that that, um, either of us have had to go through this. And I'm just wondering what kind of wisdom your guests have um, in terms of what they've seen be really effective um, care for caregivers for those who are closest to those who are dying. Yeah. Not sure how to how to support my husband um, yeah. as he goes through this with his father. That's a great question, Noel. Lady Bird. Yeah, it's a really wonderful question. Just just be yourself. I mean, I think again, we we could put so much on getting this. We want to get it right. We want to do it right. Everyone gets exactly what they need, and we won't get all of that right, like Wendy was saying. Um, do what you can when you can. And again, remember that it's not just about you, that, you know, there's nature, there's art, there's movies, there's museums, there's food, there's music, there are other people to talk to. And remember the the range of ways to nourish our beings and our souls and our bodies. It's not just about having a conversation or making someone talk about something or even going to therapy, which is wonderful, but just remember the the bigger scope mm-hmm. of what's available to you. Yeah. Um, let's hear um, from Erica in Oakland. Welcome, Erica. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I just connect so much with everything you're saying. And my best friend died of um, breast cancer at age 43. And um, I like to say that experience rearranged my cells in the way that I just ran to the experience versus um, running away. I had previously been really afraid of hospitals and um, just medical experiences in general. And I just, I was lucky enough to spend the last, um, last couple of weeks with her and her family. And it really quieted me and taught me like, what does dignity look like for somebody who's dying and doesn't want to die? And I just felt like I was listening with my entire body. Mm. Um, and just really like the the small things, like you mentioned, like making sure she had some lip gloss, um, making sure like she was cleaned up a little bit before her kids came in to see her, um, helping um, run a little bit of interference with her family uh, to make sure that like they could show up with her and answering some questions so they didn't have to ask her a lot of questions. And, um, yeah, I was with her in the hospital when the doctors kind of told her that there was nothing else they could do. And it just, it was profound and also like deeply painful and beautiful and Mm. also has made me want to, I'm a social worker myself and Mm. I work with children in the San Francisco Unified School District, but it's made me really want to look at the end of life, um, gift as it is, you know, because 
um, it is a gift to be with somebody and to experience that, I think, as well. So thank you so much. And I also wanted to kind of put a plug in for grief work and grief camps, because mm. I like to say that this this horrible club that you don't want to be a part of, but once you are, you have this like connection to people mm-hmm. um, who've been through it as well. And there are these wonderful camps for free for um, kids who've lost somebody in their life mm. where they can connect with people mm. in that experience. Erica, thank you so much for just all of that. Thank you so much. I, I don't wonder I in here tearing up um, <laughs> listening. I mean, so. that just, to, to me, that's just, thank you so much for sharing that story because that's just love. That's mm-hmm. just, that was just so much love mm. that, that you two shared and that you were able to offer. Thank you for sharing that with us. Yeah. Um, and the importance of the gatekeeper, I want to just say no. from the earlier caller that that yeah. is a profound gift to people who are supporting someone who's dying mm. to have someone play interference mm. um, yeah. for all the calls and people. So gatekeepers are very valuable. Yeah. Um, Dale writes in to say, the day my friend died, I joined her husband and two other friends at the bedside and we were her witness. We held the space by telling funny stories about her. Shocking to us, there was a lot of laughter. Mm. But we knew if she could hear us, she'd be laughing too, so we embraced us, embraced it. None of us were religious, but it was a holy experience to be there to honor her as she took her last breath that afternoon. Afterwards, we were shocked going outside and seeing the world racing along, completely unaffected by her passing. Eleven years later, this precious experience was a gift that helped me fearlessly lead my 92-year-old mom through her passing. That must, Lady Bird, that must be the strangest thing to come out of. I mean, I think about when my children were born and, you know, the, the veil between this and the other world is as thin as possible in these, in these two moments. And then you go outside, like all to Bates, and you're like walking to Whole Foods there in Berkeley and you're like, oh, I guess, um, yeah, people are just buying some grocery store sushi right now or whatever. How did you, so, did you have a, a, like a, like a ritual to kind of move back into the normal world? I, you know, it's really hard. I think that's probably the hardest part and why some people tend to stay in these realms and stay at the bedside or not get away from it very easily. Like when you do international relief work or any type of work that opens you up to a portal, my vote is to soak that up as much as you can. When, when you have the opportunity to slow things down for a moment be grateful, right? You get to operate at a different pace for a moment and it's not going to last forever. You'll be back in there shopping for groceries, you know, soon enough. And just kind of pause and honor these transition moments that allow us to recognize this greater picture. But it's not easy. I don't I wouldn't say there's a trick. I think there's just a way to honor it differently. Yeah. I'm going to go to uh, Debbie here in San Francisco, but I also just want to acknowledge, I mean, today is the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, and, you know, there's a lot of people who are have a lot of grief around that day, and just wanted to, to acknowledge that. Um, Debbie, you're a member of the San Francisco Threshold Choir, and uh, my understanding is yes. you sing to people who mm-hmm. are dying. We've put people through uh, a lot of beautiful... Uh, but difficult moments this morning. So I was just hoping maybe you could just sing to us for a minute here and give us a give us a second. Sure. Yeah. Can I just explain that we are um, a group of women. We are a presence choir, not a performance choir, and that we come 
to both bedsides in people's homes and in facilities, and we come in groups of two or three or four and sing in harmonies. So I'll sing one or two of our very, our songs are very short, and uh, just to say, we usually sing in harmony, so <laughs> I can't really do that by myself, so, um, so I'll start. Okay. May the healing light within illuminate your way. So we will do that over and over as long wow. as we feel like it's appropriate. Oh my gosh. Um, and um, yeah, let me do one more. Yeah. Again, they're very short and repetition, you know, provides, helps set the tone and the atmosphere and helps yeah. uh, create a very kind of a meditative, almost a mantra, so, but in song. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Totally. So let me just do one more. Easy, rest, easy, easy, rest, easy. Easy, rest, easy, time to rest. Oh, man. So, Thank like you that. so much, Debbie. Yeah, I so appreciate Thank that. Thank you. And, can I, I can, just, yeah, and yeah. can I just say that we have a website that's thresholdchoir.org. Yes. And we are, there are hundreds of our choirs around the country, and you could just search Join one. San Francisco right. and... We'll find yes, or and also yeah. put in a request for us to come in at bedside. And thank Debbie, you. And it was Debbie. Thank I, you because Threshold yeah. came into San Quentin and sang to the men of this group that we were honored to train, oh. and you sang to each person individually. It was mm. profound, and you've also come into Zen Hospice. Yeah, Project. there's actually a drawing, Debbie, of um, three of your members uh, singing oh. to somebody. And one of the things I thought was so moving was that you asked each person, "Would you like this? This is an option for you." Oh. Some people opted out, and some people said yes, absolutely. And there's a drawing of you in the book. Uh, last couple comments. Mary writes, when my mom was dying, I just said to her she was the best mom ever, and I kept repeating those words. It was the time to let her go, and I knew that being a mom was probably the most important thing to her. So just sending her off with those words to her heavenly home helped her pass peacefully. And Kelda writes, I did a Zen hospice caregiver training at their amazing center many years ago after my father's dying transformed me. One of the things that stayed with me were those words attributed to some Buddhist monks. A morning not spent contemplating dying is a morning lost. An afternoon not spent contemplating death is an afternoon lost. I try every day to look at my hands and imagine them not being, to imagine my heart, myself, no longer being. It's excruciating and yet so keenly, vividly nourishing too. That's what we've been doing this morning with Wendy McNaughton, author of How to Say Goodbye, and her friend and collaborator, Lady Bird Morgan. Thank you both so much. Thank you Thank so you much. That's beautiful. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. 
And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country on what figures like Elon Musk, Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and Marjorie Taylor Greene are doing. I think she wants to make things happen. She wants to get legislation passed. She made clear to me that she wants to have a president who upholds Christian values. She embraces the term Christian nationalist. That's Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Available wherever you get your podcasts.